I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about cultivating an atmosphere of faith in the home and mobilizing parents to identify harmful elements in children's books. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. The heated debates over children's literature frequently come under scrutiny here, and they create a real dilemma for a show titled Free Expression. We're opposed to censorship, but at the same time, we recognize that kids have to be protected against encountering harmful and immoral themes in what they read. Mac and Jessica McCabe are homeschooling parents in Idaho who face that problem, and they realized that they weren't alone. Parents all over the country were in the same situation. But then they realized that those very same parents might hold the answer to this common concern. They started a parents' network called Screen It First, and they're here to tell us how it works. Mac and Jessica, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having us, Bill. Well, what's this all about, and how does it work? Thank you for the wonderful intro. Um, Yes, we are homeschool parents of six lovely children between the ages of 5 and uh, 14. The youngest are five-year-old twins, and my wife, who's an avid reader. Um, I'm a web and app developer, so we were able to pair our skills to build this. Well, I was inspired by reading with my own children and being surprised by certain content right in the middle of reading it to my children. But I'm also not an advocate for taking a bunch of books out of libraries or telling other people what they can and can't read. So we came up with an idea to share the content with other parents so they can decide for themselves whether or not they want to let their children read those books. So how does the thing function? You have a network of people who are set up. Do they review these books in advance and then provide you with the information? How's it work? Yeah, that's a good question. So, again, this is a little bit difficult, but thinking about how there is censorship, um, so I love your program and what it stands for, um, we've, we've noticed, again, I work in tech, and so I've definitely seen where big tech will censor things, and so we had to be very mindful of how this would work, and we don't want to be the, quote, arbiters of what is good and what is bad, and so this is an open community. We have disentangled ourselves as much as possible from the tech overlords that might uh, censor or ban or limit our reach um, on our website. And so we know that no two parents are alike. We almost don't care what somebody posts uh, as long as it's legitimately in the book and can reasonably considered questionable content in a children's book. Uh, we basically allow it. So it's an open community, meaning anybody, anywhere who happens to stumble across something in a children in a child's book that they feel they deem other parents might find useful or helpful in determining whether it's good or bad. They can take a snapshot of that. It submits. It comes to us for moderation. We do have a small team that moderates the, the content as it comes in. Uh, the first step being we verify that it is legitimately in a book, um, that it exists. And secondly, that it could reasonably considered questionable um, within the category they selected. Are the books evaluated on the basis of their ideological focus, or are are you looking for specific instances, say, bad language or sexual references and that sort of thing? What, what, What are the criteria? We're mostly just allowing anybody to take a snapshot 
of something that they find objectionable. Okay. So if they do feel like there's an ideology that's in the book, as long as they could take a picture of, say, a paragraph that pushes that, then they could post it, but they would just add a little bit of context. Yeah, so you're looking at really specific kinds of points there and, and offering some visual proof that that this is a real complaint. Like, say, drugs inside a book. They would take a picture of that exact part that shows that they're talking about drugs and then post it. Okay. So the, to be to be clear, though, to answer a little more explicitly, Bill, um, your the categories that we have determined, and this is again based on interviews with multiple parents. We've narrowed it down to only a handful of categories, but we've also included uh, a bigger, broad category, which is miscellaneous. So not everything is going to fall neatly into one of our primary categories, which are foul language, violence or death, sexual content, LGBTQ alcohol and drugs, racism, lying, stealing, dark content, which would include like demons or witches or witchcraft, potty humor, and then explicit content. So even though something might be, you know, sexual content uh, and explicit as well, um, and that, that's a determination we do make when it comes in for moderation. If somebody says, uh, categories as sexual content, but it's really explicit, it's got, you know, really graphic imagery that would not be appropriate for younger children, we do mark that as explicit content just as a, an additional flag for parents to be extremely mindful before even they consume that content. How do people uh, sign up to be a screener? It's fully open, so all you have to do is go to screenatfirst.com. Uh, the search, it uses open libraries, so it should contain every book and every children's book. We, there are a few gaps we're filling in, but all you have to do is go to the website, screenatfirst.com, find a book, and click the Screen It button and that will submit it uh, to moderation. We are a privacy-focused, again, knowing how the tech, big tech, can be very censorious. Um, we want to respect people's privacy. We understand that not everybody wants their information out there. Um, so when you submit a screen on Screen at First, it's completely private. If you want, there is an option to uh, enter your email address. Um, there's no accounts. Um, if you enter your email address, that's the only time that we will reach out and follow up with you. Uh, again, it's, it's you have to give explicit requests for us to, to reach out to you, but it's, it's completely open. How do people search this? Is, is the, does your site contain a search engine that people can uh, query by title or author, or, or how does that work? Yeah, so from the tech side of things, we, we did limit the search to title, author, or ISBN, uh, or any combination therein. Um, and yes, there is a fairly substantial um, number of books that have been screened, but there's also a bunch of books that have not been screened. So the number of books that have been screened thus far is just a little under a 1,000, and we've got about, I think, 2,500 total contents, individual screens. So some books will have three, four, and five. In the future, we've got a lot of people asking for the ability to screen or, or to search based on a screen category, like racism, so to only see books that have been flagged with racism. We're a little on the fence on whether we want to open that up for a search like that, because it could be used for the opposite end for people to basically use our site to promote books that might contain sexual content or racism. And so we're, we're likely not going to include filters like that. But we also have a filter that says nothing found. So this is books that contain, that, that parents have found, read and said, oh, this book is totally free and clear of anything questionable. And if they flag it with that, then uh, and we moderate that again, same way as any other category. 
Um, we do plan on having a nothing found filter. So on top of the base filter by search, uh, by title, author, ISBN, we do intend to uh, allow people to search for books based on, you know, being completely free and clear of any of the, the categories we screen for. So th- this is really a work in progress. This is developing over time. Right. This is intended to be a, like a community effort where we are all sharing with each other what we find so that somebody else can benefit from what we find in a book. Yeah, one of the things that Jessica didn't mention, uh, there was more a, a big inspiration to this. Um, I would sit there and watch my wife. She has a stack of books, uh, again, with six kids that are all avid readers. We'll go to the library, so easily bring back 50 to 70 books, and they go into a pile. And, the, you know, over the last few years, she'll read through them, she'll scream through them, and she'll put them in a it, it's okay or it's not okay. And, you know, it wasn't a lot, but anywhere between 5 and 10% of the books were just not okay for, they didn't align with our beliefs. We didn't feel like our, they were age-appropriate for our children. And so they would go right back to the library before our children could consume them. And so as I saw this, I was talking to my wife and saying, you know, how, many, how, much, how many hours do you invest in this and how much time? And we realized that this would be a good opportunity for other parents to share what they know instead of my wife having to screen every book for everyone or, and the woman next door and all of her friends having to screen all the books for themselves. We could come together, we could band it together to share our wisdom and knowledge in, in an open platform. And so it's really a time-saving tool on top of a protective tool. And, and I would say that, that one of the big inspirations for me that I see is as this grows, my wife is able to skip pre-reading some books because she could just find it on screen at first and see that another parent has already screened a book and said, show us what's in it. The idea of censorship is extremely controversial. Have you gotten any blowback from anyone on, on this project? Oh, oh for sure. It's, we have tried really hard to remain neutral in that debate, um, because much like you, we are free speech advocates, uh, free, free expression advocates. But on the, on the flip side of that, we also do need to protect our children. So it is a fine line to walk, and we get a lot of blowback even though there's nothing, our site is very clear. We are not for book bans, which most people aren't, but we are about protecting children. And so people, most of the blowback comes from people that are making an assumption. They're filling in the gaps. They're, they're making a judgment without even taking a moment to digest the content, to see what we're doing, to see, you know, what our mission is about. Our tagline, I think, sums it up well, and that's the right book at the right time to build healthy minds. We want children to read age-appropriate content. It's not just about sexual content. Sometimes there's content in a book that might trigger a child's separation anxiety or very various anxieties or fears, and then they're up all night with nightmares. Um, there's, there are all kinds of reasons that any parent might want to shield their, children, their child from a uh, specific book, and that's all we're about. It's just about informing parents so that they know what's in a kid's book before they read it. But yeah, we, get, we do get blowback, but it's mostly because people have already made up their mind that they're against something, and they're not even willing to listen. There, there's a subtle aspect in all of this, too. I mean, there are books that may contain difficult passages, but at the same time, they raise questions that children at, a, at an appropriate age really ought to consider. How do you go about evaluating books like that? I have a lot of books that are some of my favorite children's books that I've done screens for just to allow other parents to know that's in there. And we have a little spot on there that says add context. And so I will add a little bit of context and say, 
this issue resolves itself or the stealing that happened was not looked at in a good way and the character resolves the issue towards the end. So the person screening has a place to add some context. Where can people go to uh, find out about this, to uh, query your search engine and find the books thereafter? ScreenItFirst.com is the website. Um, It's not an app, uh, a native app on their phone. They would have to go to ScreenItFirst.com. There are tutorials on how to use the site and how to better access it. We're also on Facebook. Um, That's kind of the main social media piece that we're using at the moment. We do have Twitter and Instagram, but Facebook seems a little more relevant to our audience. Screen it first, Mac and Jessica McCabe. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking time to talk about this. You're on to something very useful and very interesting. Thank you so much, Bill. Family is often referred to as the domestic church. We get our first exposure to religious belief in the home, which is to say our earliest awareness that there's something beyond and bigger than ourselves. Sometimes the early ideas we absorb are quite far from actual faith in the conventional sense, which is to say it's important to create a home atmosphere that can help open our eyes to God's creation. Emily Malloy is a floral designer who believes that the beauty of nature can be invaluable in grasping Christian truth and in coming to understand and appreciate the church. She's contributed a new book to a series called The Theology of Home. In it, she shares her knowledge of flowers and how they can be used to enrich our spiritual lives. Emily, thanks so much for being with us. It is a joy to be with you here today. Thank you. Now, this book has a subtitle, Arranging the Seasons. What is it all about, and how does it fit into the series? Yeah, so it is about nature, and in particular with a special look at the garden, and how the Lord has perfectly arranged and ordained things in the calendar year through the four seasons, and as it relates um, in a lot of ways to the liturgical calendar, Hmm. and how what the Lord shows us and reveals to us in nature and as we cooperate with Him in the garden and how that um, how that teaches us about our own lives, about our spiritual lives, and just so much wisdom can be gleaned from that. What do you do with flowers? How do you approach them so that they can become enriching in the way that you propose? I suppose it is in the way in which we have a posture toward anything. But I think what is very unique about flowers and in the garden is, um, regardless of of your um, involvement in the process, if you're the gardener growing it or if you're going to a flower shop or a flower market um, sort of thing, there is this awareness of the fragility of the particular beauty of the flower, but also the cooperation that exists in growing the flower. Um, there's so much that is out of our control. Um, you know, nature can either <laughs> throw way too much rain and, and create rot, or there can be a lack of rain and everything is so parched, or storms or anything in between, ice, snow, frost. There's just so much vulnerability um, that can take place in the garden. And having a mind to that and seeing how the flowers are able to still um, survive in in all of those different conditions um, is really awe-inspiring. My wife, who is an avid gardener, has a favorite poem, if I can recall it. 
The kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth, one's nearer God's heart in the garden than any place else on earth. So true. <laughs> well, uh, now, when you take the flowers into the home, how uh, do you approach it in a special way? Do you use them as decorative elements? Um, yes, absolutely. So, you know, what's really fun about flowers is they're so versatile. Um, there's a lot you can do, and there's a little you can do. You know, depending on how many flowers you're gathering, you could create one really big, beautiful, lush arrangement. But then you can also have a really sweet arrangement of a single stem. And that's just the beauty of it. You know, it just, the flower does all of the work. And all you have to do is just put it in water and, and help put it in a place where it'll be loved. And so that's what I think is so unique about floral design in particular is that the, the flower does all of the work. And all you have to do is just put it in a place to be loved. Yeah, there are kind of lessons in all of this for kids, too. I know that uh, our grandchildren uh, often are in the garden. They really kind of get caught up in it. They, they catch a certain kind of spirit being there. Yeah, there's something about getting your hands dirty. There's, you know, just kind of getting into the soil. And, you know, I had a, sort of an epiphany moment when I was really thinking, getting into the life in the garden, because I hadn't always been a gardener. I was a gardener really after training as a florist. And just the recognition that this is what the Lord created us for, to tend the garden, you know, and how flowers have always been there since the beginning. And just, you know, there's this connectivity that happens. You know, we're more at peace when we're working in the garden and our hands are dirty and, you know, the smell of the fresh earth, there's just, there's something about it, you know. And I talk about in my book that even people that have a secular mindset, when they're stressed or they're, they feel burdened with something, they always go out into nature um, to sort of recharge. There's something to that because that is where the Lord created that first encounter with us in, in creation that we see in Genesis. Yeah, uh, flowers do have a special significance in, in a religious setting. We think of them in terms of weddings and funerals, of mm -hmm. course, but we do decorate the altar differently for the various liturgical seasons. How do you approach that? How do you determine what are the appropriate flowers for each season? You know, a lot of times, more more often than not, you'll see it just more or less be seasonal. And, of course, there are, you know, different colors that people will go to toward sort of Advent and Lent. Um, and, and some places will even, you know, more or less have a very um, pared-down arrangement on the altar. And, of course, there are times when there is nothing on the altar, correct? You know, when you think of the Triduum in particular at Easter right. and um, Good Friday. So there is just... A beautiful way of going about that. Now, I, I personally love using what is in season with flowers um, to, when I have the opportunity to decorate the altar, because I don't always have, you know, we kind of divvy it up in our parish. Um, but there is something to sort of looking at the particular order of things, because I think if we look back at our own lives, there are times in which flowers sort of evoke a certain memory. So I always think of the smell of hyacinths at Easter time and think of the, the, that fragrance and the, the, the view of, of those particular flowers and Easter lilies and, and everything at that season, you think of poinsettias at Christmas time and, and um, amaryllis and all of those different things. So there are certain flowers that have a hallmark of the season. I love incorporating that at, in the church and also in the house. Of course, evergreens at Christmas, so I'd be remiss to not <laughs> say, you know, the fragrance of evergreens being really evocative in bringing you to a certain posture in a season. 
Right. Yeah, Easter and Christmas especially, right. Yeah. Uh, how does this book fit into the whole series? What are the other elements of this book series? Well, so the whole idea is in, in each of the book series, it has a different theme that we can encounter God in certain places and aspects in our life. And I think that each book has its own unique hallmarks and themes going through. So the first one is really just this overall introduction into looking at our homes as a domestic church. And then the second one dives much deeper into sort of the spirituality of homemaking. And then the third is keeping a mind of how important the sea is thematically, um, biblically, you know, through the saints, through all of these different things. So, and just all of these different aspects of life and how we encounter the Lord. And the garden fits in that same way because the garden is that same extension of the home and really just an outpouring of that same place. And so it's kind of, you know, each each theme is growing a little bit bigger and a little bit deeper, you know, building off of that first book of that idea of the place of home in our spiritual life. Now, there's a blog associated with this, too, right? Correct. Uh, Carrie Gress and Noel Maring uh, do that. In fact, Noel, I was on the show. I interviewed, about, uh, I interviewed her about one of her other books. So it's it's kind of a unified approach here. You're you're tackling these subjects from a number of different angles. Absolutely, and and they're all they're all related to one big overarching theme of of how we can you know reorient ourselves in our home and our faith life, cultivate a faith life within the home to to prepare us on our journey back to our eternal home. Theology of home is the name of that. Well, where can people find more about this book and maybe order it? So um, there are a few places where you can find my book. Of course, um, we have a little mercantile at Theology of Home that helps support our work the, and, and the writers that write for it. And um, so that is theologyofhome.com. Um, of course, Tan Books is, publishes the book, and it can also be found at Tan Books. And it is also available at Amazon. Theology of Home, Arranging the Seasons. Emily Malloy, and it, uh, the book is from TAN, T-A-N, Publishers. Thanks so very much for being with us. Uh, it, it's a lovely book, and uh, your approach is very enriching and uplifting. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. As you plan your charitable giving with all its yearly tax implications, please consider supporting your local Catholic radio station. The experience of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio here in our Michigan broadcast area has shown that Catholic radio is a vital source of information for the Catholic community. Good Shepherd was founded by the late Doug Schumard. Before his death a couple of years ago, I sat down with Doug as he reflected on what it took to get this station on the air. My wife that led to this whole thing, she had some serious cancer issues some years ago, and uh, we were getting anxious to get out of that room where we've, we were doing all the helping and cheering up and so forth. So we decided to head up north and just take a trip, just get out on our own and go up and look at the color changes. And as we drove north in Michigan, we, every time we went through a new city, we saw another sign for Catholic Radio. So as we traveled, my wife said, you know, when we get back home, we need to figure out how to do this. Why can we have radio here in the middle of nowhere and all the woods, but yet in Jackson, we can't get Catholic Radio. So when we got back, I called Mike Jones at Ave Maria, I talked to him. I looked up on the internet, Berger Broadcasting, and I called that number talked to, to uh, Tom McMahon, who had started that 
those stations. So he gave me some tips, and uh, it went, it grew from there. Now Jackson is a pretty good Catholic town. There are quite a few parishes here, and about, about eight, eight Catholic churches in the in the vicariate here. Yeah. And yet it's it's a little off the beaten path in a way. It's just a little too far from Ann Arbor, where Ave Maria Radio is, to get a decent signal down here consistently. So there was definitely a market, I think, that was in need of this and was sort of crying out for it. It was. It was. The difficult part, the really difficult part, is to try to figure out how you're going to get a radio station. Once you feel the need for it, you can't just sit down and start a radio station. You have to find an existing station and, and bring it up. So uh, after... A couple of years of looking for a station, uh, I made contact with Spring Harbor University. They had a couple of stations for sale, and so we picked this one up. The license, we had an, an, an attorney working for us, FCC attorney, so we had the right connections, and uh, here we are. Did you find uh, a warm acceptance on the part of the local clergy and other people involved in the church here? Not as strong as we would like, as we would hope. I think most of the pastors are supportive of Catholic Radio, some more than others, but uh, we need more than a smile and a, we need we, we need funds to keep this thing going. Right. And that's, that's right. very, very difficult to convince people of. Well, a lot of people have their hands out. There are all sorts of good causes around, and I guess... And this is the time of year. My mailbox every day is full <laughs> of, of two or three more. When did you go on the air? Well, we went on the air part-time. We, we rented a station. We were on the air Saturdays only. We purchased a slot there that gave us an hour prior to the Notre Dame football pregame show every Saturday. It was a good slot, we thought, at the time. Yeah, it was a nice tie-in there. It was, yeah. When did you finally launch a, a, the full broadcast schedule? Probably 07 or 08. been some time ago. There was a time uh, back uh, during the Obama administration when the FCC was raising some concern about whether religious broadcasting would be able to uh, prevail. They were talking about different kinds of requirements serving the local community, and that's kind of been pushed out of the way. But does it ever occur to you that there might come a time when uh, religious broadcasting might not be available or might be under pressure? Well, anything is possible. Um, the devil is always on our shoulder, so we always need to remember to send him back to hell. There's always a fear of uh, what you're discussing, but uh, we're strong, and Catholic Radio is huge now. When we first started this, there were probably 59 stations in the country. And now there's probably almost 500 Catholic Radio stations. In this time of censorship and so-called cancel culture, Catholic Radio is becoming increasingly important as an alternative media source. Our programming is based on the Word of God and the teaching of His Church, and we bring you the factual, truthful information you aren't getting from the mainstream media. Support Catholic Radio. Your generosity keeps Catholic outlets on the air, and donations to broadcast ministries can be tax-deductible. Urge your friends and relatives to tune in as well. By the way, when you get the chance, check out my website, BillCastle.com, where you'll find information on my novel about the family of Jesus. It's titled My Brother's Keeper, and it won the Catholic Arts and Letters Award for Best Adult Fiction. That's B-I-L-L-K-A-S-S-E-L dot com. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. 
Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.